You know, we've heard about the seared conscience. We've heard about how depraved our world is, and especially that what we're seeing in our country is just an example of people standing at God, shaking their fist in rebellion and saying, I don't care. I'm proud to go to hell. If Christ comes again, I'll kill him. Is there any hope for them? Well, as we look at what the Bible says about the conscience, the answer is absolutely yes. There is. We should not look at those with a seared conscience and say, well, I hate you. You deserve hell. Because the truth is, we deserve hell as well. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be forgiven. The only reason why we have salvation, why we have the assurance of forgiveness and glory with God in his presence, is because of the perfect work of Christ. It's not our merit. It's his merit. It's not our work. It's his work. Well, I hope you had a uh, blessed week. Uh, it's been good for us. We've been uh, just blessed to spend time with, uh, with our family, just at home, nothing special, but just to enjoy uh, what God has given to us. And um, we have some good conversations with our families who are in different places. Uh, we get to FaceTime uh, Tim and Grace out in Michigan, and so that's a highlight every week. And I've uh, just kind of been thinking about this week when we were at the retreat of all the ways God has blessed us and just share that with some of the men and, you know, just looking at some of the everyday things, the simple things, and just say, Lord, thank you for that, that uh, they don't have to be these uh, grand things. We can look at, at everyday blessings and say, Lord, you are so good, uh, just so gracious to us. Even the fact that we were able to go up to a retreat, uh, an overnighter, and uh, that was a wonderful blessing indeed. Uh, as Pastor Scott mentioned, we had a good time up there. Some guys are maybe still limping, hobbling around. Uh, that's because they went up on a mountain that is known as Soldier Mountain. And uh, if you've done that before, you know it's a pretty strenuous hike. Uh, I've done that before. I didn't do that this weekend. Uh, that's because I made the choice to stay up until 1.30 on Saturday morning. And I didn't want to get up at 5.30 to go hiking. And so... Um, Anyhow, it was a good time, a good time to see men that uh, we haven't seen for a while and uh, to make some new friends as well. And so I got some contact information from some men that uh, I met and just look forward to seeing them and maybe meeting up with them uh, sometime before next year. And so it was really good. Uh, there was a little bit of a speed bump on our way to uh, the retreat. Uh, what normally takes about two and a half hours uh, as far as the travel goes uh, ended up being about a four-hour trip. And that's because there was a lot of traffic just in general. But then there was an accident outside of Barstow. And uh, another one, I believe it was a car fire, that was right before the exit where we get off to go to Ironwood. And uh, we were uh, lucky enough, when I say lucky enough, you know what I mean, blessed to, to find out ahead of time that there was that delay. And so we used the maps and figured out an alternate route uh, to go around the 40 rather than the 15. And we went kind of the back way, and we missed all of that traffic, even though it took us a little bit longer uh, to get there. Uh, not everyone was so fortunate. The speaker for Friday evening, which we had three speakers this weekend. It was myself and two other men. Uh, the gentleman who was speaking on Friday uh, got there at 7.12, and we started our session at 7.15. And so they really uh, cut it close, but there was no other choice. They had to go through all the traffic. Uh, there was another gentleman that I spoke with that I've known for a number of years, and uh, he said that he was routed uh, to go around uh, all of the traffic, and he was relying on his maps and uh, the GPS to get him to Ironwood quickly. 
Uh, but what he said was is that it took him this strange way that he hadn't gone before, and he wasn't quite sure of where it was leading him, but he was trusting the GPS to get him there. And uh, he soon realized he was kind of going around in circles. He was uh, looking at locations he had seen before, and then he lost cell connection, and uh, he didn't know where he was. And so uh, he was driving around a little bit, a little frustrated. He was able to find a spot where he got a little pocket of uh, reception, and so he called his wife and told her what was going on, asked her to find a route where she was uh, by, by figuring out where he was. And then I think she sent a text message to him with kind of a turn by turn. And he was able to get to the camp, but not without some additional delays. Uh, and so when we, we looked at that, we kind of laughed a little bit and said, well, thank the Lord that you got here, uh, even though it took you a little while to get here. Um, you know, when you, when you think about GPS and those apps, for us, it worked well. For him, he had a little bit of a glitch, but he still got to his destination. But uh, I don't know if you've heard stories or you've read articles about GPS uh, that kind of goes wrong, uh, where people are led to areas that they really uh, weren't looking for. And some of them are not just uh, uh, going to a wrong location, but uh, some of them actually turn out to be kind of dangerous situations. Uh, I was looking at some of those this week, and I'm going to share a few of those with you here. And so uh, I've, uh, this one, I, I've, I've titled it GPS Gone Wrong. Uh, that might be a reality show as well, we can see. Uh, but um, here are five times that GPS has gone wrong. Now this one um, is, uh, resulted in death in Death Valley. It says in summer 2008, uh, a lady, 20-year-old, 28-year-old uh, nurse was uh, with her son, and they were driving through the hot uh, landscape of Death Valley National Park. Uh, if you've ever been there, you know how hot and barren it is. So she was out there in her Jeep Cherokee, and uh, it says that a ranger found them about 20 miles off course. And uh, when he found them, they were buried up to their axle in sand. So the sand was just blowing and burying the car. Uh, SOS was spelled out in medical tape on the window. It says an exhausted and severely dehydrated Sanchez, that was the woman's last name, Alicia Sanchez, collapsed into the park ranger's arms while the lifeless body of her six-year-old son lay slumped in the front seat. They had survived for several days on bottled water, Pop-Tarts, and cheese sandwiches, but tragically, the boy didn't make it. He had died two days before his mother was rescued. There was another example in Brazil. Uh, this one, this couple was uh, traveling to a, uh, a beach, I believe. They wanted to go for a relaxing day at the beach. A uh, lady and her husband, and so they were using GPS to get to, to their location, and it actually sent them through a very dangerous location that was notorious for a gang cartel. And as they were going through, they got caught in the crossfire, and um, the uh, wife was struck by a bullet. Her husband survived, but his wife did not. Uh, another example of a bridge, uh, this one was with a bridge that was uh, out, it says here, a woman dies after her husband drives off a bridge. In March 2015, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Iftikhar, if, Iftikhar Hussein and his 51-year-old wife Zora set off from their home in Chicago to visit family in Indiana. Following the GPS in their Nissan Sentra, they approached a bridge that had been closed for repair since 2009. Uh, it says, despite numerous barricades, orange cones, and road closed signs, uh, Mr. Hussein continued onward, seemingly paying more attention to GPS instructions than the warning signs that were clearly posted around him. The car plunged off the bridge, dropping more than 11 meters, 37 feet, 
and burst into flames shortly after impact. Uh, Mr. Hussein survived, but his wife was unable to escape from the car and died in the blaze. Uh, here's another one that has to do with a man who just wanted a day out to go fishing. It says, a man takes a fishing trip and never returns. In summer 2015, 69-year-old Silas Wrigley went missing after setting off on a fishing trip uh, to Oregon. After a week-long search, his truck and body were discovered off a remote dirt road. It's thought that he was led astray by his truck's GPS. Investigators analyzing Mr. Wrigley's death believe he may have missed the turnoff uh, to Lake Oahe and had to recalculate his GPS route, which led him to the remote road where his truck and body were found. Uh, and then this one that resulted in a seven-week detour. It says, GPS shortcut leads to death on a mountain. In March 2011, Albert and Rita, uh, I think it is a, a Tritain, left British Columbia in their Chevrolet Astro van, and they headed for a convention in Las Vegas. Along the way, they decided to compare their planned route against the car's GPS and take what they thought was a shortcut. Unaware that GPS directions emit seasonal conditions, they soon found themselves on a treacherous remote road in the desert mountains. After traveling for six miles, the road became impassable. Their cars succumbed to the muddy conditions and they were left stranded. Attempts to dig themselves out and get back onto the road were futile. At this point, they decided to set on on foot, but unknown to them, they were headed in the wrong direction. Uh, when Mrs. Chatrain's uh, swollen knee gave out, they had no other option but to turn back. It was then that her husband decided to go it alone. He said goodbye to his wife and headed off with the GPS. It would be the last time Rita saw her husband alive. For nearly two months, uh, Rita survived alone in the car. She read her Bible, rationed her food, and ate snow. After 49 days of solitude, she finally accepted that her fate was to die alone in the wilderness. Ironically, it was on that day that she was eventually rescued. In October 2012, over a year and a half after he went missing, uh, her husband's body was found. He had climbed around 2,400 feet in snow and was about seven miles west of where he set off. He lost the ability to use the GPS due to the snowdrifts and couldn't tell where the road was. He had done a lot of unnecessary climbing and was heading for the summit of a mountain when he died. You know, not every mistake or misdirection on GPS turns out in tragedy, but in these situations, uh, these people put their trust in a navigation system. They were headed for a certain location. They were not expecting to get into trouble, but what they found was tragedy. They trusted a device that was supposed to lead them in the right direction, not lead them to a situation of peril. And, and so as I was thinking about the connection here with GPS and what I'm going to share with you this morning, you know, we need to understand that as human beings, not just Christians, but as people in general, we have a navigation that is a system that has been given to us. We have an internal mechanism. We have something within each and every person that God has given to us that was designed to help us navigate through life, to give us direction, to bring us to a place uh, that is uh, safe. And I'm not talking about a physical location. We're talking about living in a world that is filled with, with treacherous pitfalls. We're talking about that moral compass that is known as the human conscience. These people followed these maps, but we have within us uh, this internal compass. And as we look at this this morning and we look at this conscience, we're going to see that it's an amazing blessing from God. 
that God has put this within each and every individual. It's a very powerful resource when it's programmed with the proper information. Now, we don't know exactly what went wrong with the GPS. Uh, there was one article where it said that the GPS did not account for seasonal changes, and that makes sense. Things happen, roads change. Some become impassable at during uh, different times of the year. In fact, as we were going to Ironwood, and I told some people that we came the back way through the 40, they said, I came that way one time and got stuck in the sand, and I was told never to go that way again. And there was a stretch where we were going down a road, and you can see that it was coming down, and then it came back up, and you just see sand piled up on the side. They had cleared the way. But that's the area where people will go in there, and there will be a few feet of sand, and if they hit it, they can't get out. And that is a seasonal thing. Uh, so we don't know what happened here. It could have been some problem with software, a problem with hardware. Maybe GPS was correct, but the person was not paying attention. Maybe they were paying more attention to what was there as opposed to what was around them. Or the GPS was wrong and they just didn't uh, consider looking at any other sources. So there's all sorts of reasons why that, that um, mechanism for direction failed them. The human conscience, in a way, is like that. It is a mechanism that God has given to us, and we rely upon it to make decisions based on what we believe is good or bad, what is right or wrong, what is righteous or wicked. And we think about what we see, we think about what's going on around us in our lives, in the world, and we make decisions on what to do based on the way our conscience speaks to us in the direction that it guides us. And so when we talk about this, this moral compass, this mechanism within us that is the conscience, we're going to spend time today looking at the subject of the conscience. We're going to take one week break from the Gospel of Luke. I'll come back and, and finish up a few more Sundays on that. But for today, I'm going to share with you a message I shared with the men yesterday. And that has to do with the human conscience. And so uh, I've titled this message, The Seared and the Sensitive Conscience. We're going to see here that the conscience can be both sensitive to God and his word, but it can also be seared. It can be cauterized. It can be desensitized to the things of God. And that kind of parallels the glitches, the problems that you have with these navigation systems. If the software is corrupt, if the hardware is corrupt, if the programmer is corrupt, if it has not been updated, it is going to fail you at some point. But if it is in tune, if it has the right information, it will lead you where you need to go. Uh, Acts 24, 16. We're going to look at a number of passages this morning, but this is one that I've chose as kind of the theme for this message. Acts 24, 16 says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. And so as Paul is speaking here, he says, it is my goal to work hard to strive to have a conscience that is blameless, where I can stand before you and I can stand before God and say, my conscience is clear. I can lay my head down on the pillow at night and I can rest easily because I know that what I am doing, how I am thinking, the decisions that I make are based on the right information. And that is found in God's word. And so we're going to uh, look at that this afternoon, and I'm going to uh, ask and answer for you three questions. The first one is this, what is the conscience? Okay. We probably have heard that term, maybe even in something like a Disney movie. Uh, Joshua and I last night were looking at uh, IMDb, and I don't know what we were looking at, but we saw that there was a new uh, Pinocchio movie coming out uh, from Disney, I think a live action, and we all know Jiminy Cricket. 
right? He is like Pinocchio's conscience. And so we understand the concept of the conscience. Listen to your conscience, follow your conscience, follow your heart. We have that understanding as people. But what is that? What does it really mean to follow your conscience or to listen to your conscience? So we'll look at that. What is the conscience? And then we'll ask the question, what is a seared conscience? And how is that different from a sensitive conscience? Who has a seared conscience? How do you get a seared conscience? And what is the importance of having a sensitive conscience? So we will look at these questions today and answer them. And hopefully, as we go through this study today, you will have a better understanding of that wonderful gift that God has given to you that will help you to live in this world for his glory and avoid the pitfalls of sin. Let me open up in prayer, and then we will get started with the question, what is the conscience? Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to look at the subject. Thank you that your word is clear on the issue and that we have been given your spirit uh, to give us knowledge and wisdom, insight, Lord, clarity to what your word says. I pray that we will pay attention, that we will take what we learn, we will apply it to our lives for the glory of your name, to see growth as Christians in our own lives, and to be salt and light in a very dark and wicked world. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's start with the definitions of the conscience as we look at that question, what is the conscience? Uh, I have here for you, I think there's about eight or nine definitions, and I've just taken these from various sources. Some are Christian and some are, are not Christian. But what I want you to see here is that the world in general has a basic understanding that is very similar when it comes to the conscience. In a Merriam-Webster dictionary, it defines it this way, the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. Uh, the website, the Ethics Center, says this, the conscience describes two things, what a person believes is right and how a person decides what is right. More than just gut instinct, our conscience is a moral muscle. As we go on, we see here Origen said, the conscience is a co uh, correcting and guiding spirit accompanying the soul by which it is led away from evil and made to cling to good. Aquinas said the conscience is the reason making moral judgments. In the New Dictionary of Christian Ethics and Pastoral Theology, it defines the conscience this way, the inner aspect of the life of the individual where a sense of what is right and wrong is developed. We go on here, the New International Dictionary of the Christian Church the conscience within man is some faculty by which he can form a habit of asking what he ought to do and of making judgments about the moral quality and value of his actions and thoughts. In the Systematic Theology by MacArthur and Mayhew, uh, they define it this way. The conscience is the sense of being obligated to do the right and avoid the wrong. In some views, a virtual faculty of human nature. And uh, in Robert Duncan Culver's uh, Systematic Theology, uh, he says, the conscience is the something which judges our own and others' actions. Well, as I mentioned, I was up until 1.30 Saturday morning, and I thought, well, those are all good, but maybe I should come up with a definition of my own, so I did. And as I told the men when I shared this with them yesterday, I said, remember, I came up with this at 1.30 in the morning. And so if it sounds accurate to you, well, then great. If not, remember, I was up at 1.30 in the morning. 
And so uh, as I was reading all of those, I said, okay, well, it's an innate aspect, faculty mechanism. I'm not quite sure what to call it yet. One of those, I think they all work. Uh, within all people, which is God-given and essential to self-evaluating one's understanding of right and wrong and motivating one's actions or inaction based on one's conviction of what is right and wrong. And so when we look at that, we're all saying kind of the same thing. There's something inside of each and every one of us that, that is directing us, it is instructing us, it, it is either convicting us or, or it is, it is um, justifying our actions, and we're saying, this is right, this is wrong, therefore I will act in this manner. And, and we all have that mechanism within us. We all have that faculty within us. And we make our decisions in life based on our conscience. The conscience, though, itself is kind of a neutral thing. It is there. It has been designed to function in a certain way. And when I say it's neutral, what I mean by that, it doesn't mean that it isn't influenced by other external sources. It absolutely is. But the conscience itself isn't the source of truth. The conscience itself isn't the source of the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. It can detect it based on what you feed the conscience. Uh, yesterday in one of the sessions, uh, the uh, speaker was talking about uh, holiness, personal holiness. And he used a phrase that I'm sure is familiar with many people, and that is garbage in, garbage out. If you are filling your computer, you are filling your mind, you're filling some source uh, of uh, technology that you are using and you're relying upon, if all you put into it is garbage, then garbage is going to come out. In a sense, the conscience is the same way. If you are filling your mind with things that are garbage, that are spiritually corrupt, your conscience is going to evaluate everything based on corrupt information. That is why unbelievers look at what is wicked and say this is good. That is why those in the world who do not know Christ will look at sin and say this is not sin, this is just natural, this is the way we were created. This is what you must accept. And if you say this is not right, then you are the one who is wrong. And that is because their conscience has been misinformed. It has is, is received corrupt information. And obviously the opposite of that would be a, a conscience that has received the knowledge from God's word. And says, this is how I process things. This is the way I see the things of the world. This is why I call this good and this bad, this truth and this error, this sin and this righteousness. Why? Because God word, or God's word says these things are good and bad, right and wrong. Therefore, my conscience is in line with that. And so when we talk about the conscience, it is a very valuable tool that God has given to us so that we can make those decisions and determine what is right and wrong and how to act or to not act in a way that will fall in line with God's desire, with his will for us. So we have to be very careful to guard the conscience, to feed the conscience that information that it needs that comes from a pure source, not a corrupt well of information. When we talk about the conscience, we also see here that it's a universal thing. Every person has a conscience. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes this, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their heart, or their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. 
And so as we're talking about this, this, this non-physical uh, component that exists within all people, Paul says, listen, this isn't just that something that, that God's people have. This isn't something that is just exclusive to Jewish people. This is something that goes out to the Gentiles. They have it as well. And what we see within these Gentiles is that they have some knowledge of God's law. They have a concept of what is right and wrong, of what God's word said is right and wrong. And where do they have that? He says, you see them, they are a law to themselves, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, and they are either accused or defended by their conscience. He says, this isn't something that is only for Jewish people. This isn't something that is only for saved people. Unbelievers have a conscience. Gentiles have a conscience. The conscience, of course, is corrupted when it's not in line with God and his word. I believe that the conscience is one of those aspects of what we call the image of God. When we look at God creating man in his own image, the conscience, that that ability to determine what is right and wrong and act upon it, that is something we don't see in the animal kingdom. We talked about instinct with animals. The animals don't have a conscience the way we have a conscience as human beings. We look at them making decisions, and it's really just survival. We're making decisions that are, you know, we're thinking about morals. We're thinking about ethics. We're thinking about truth and error. The animal kingdom doesn't think that way. You know, when you, when you look at man, we were set apart from the rest of God's creation, and I believe the conscience is one of those things that God has given to us that sets us apart. And Paul says here, these Gentiles who don't have the law of God, they don't have the scriptures, they don't have God's word, they somehow act in accordance with the law. And that conviction is coming from within. They have some internal understanding of what the law is and how to act in response to the law of God. And he says, and their conscience will accuse them or defend them. If they are, are acting in a way, thinking in a way that is contrary to the law, they will be accused. If they are acting in a way or thinking in a way that is in line with God's law, they will be defended. And that is true of believer or unbeliever. When, when we are acting in line with what we believe is right or wrong, we're going to either feel accused or defended. Now, the problem with a flawed conscience is you're going to feel defended when you are living in sin, when you're practicing corruption. We'll get to that in just a little bit. You know, this, this human conscience I have seen here uh, in many examples, just as I've ministered at, uh, in Anaheim. Uh, I haven't seen this woman for quite some time, but for a while there was a, a woman here, a prostitute, who was working here on, on uh, Beach Boulevard, and, and she would come by often, and we would talk outside, and I'd pray with her and share with her. And she told me more than, you know, half a dozen times that um, when she walked by the church building, she felt so guilty that she would make her living by prostituting herself. She had been doing it for years, and she had no desire to get out of it. But when she walked by our building, she felt horrible. Why do you think that is? Her conscience was convicting her. Maybe it wasn't convicting her while she was out on the street. It wasn't convicting her when she was with her clients. When she walked by the church, she saw that. She saw the cross. She saw me, and she immediately felt guilty. She felt a sense of right and wrong. That was her conscience that was accusing her. 
We had a number of children who used to visit from the hotels here on Beach and Ball. We used to minister to them and, and reach out to a lot of these families that uh, had children who were in and out of foster care or they were living in hotels because they couldn't afford to get an apartment and uh, it was better than living on the street. We had a number of kids who would come in and, and we would invite their parents to come. Uh, the parents would send the children, but the parents rarely ever came into a service, whether it was a Bible study or a, a Sunday service. And uh, we would take the children home. We would visit the parents and invite them to come. And I recall that there was a family just down the street here, uh, down on Fern. And we went in, and they were very thankful that we were taking their children and, and uh, caring for them and bringing them home and making sure they were safe. And um, when I invited the uh, mother to church, she just kindly said, well, okay, thank you. Maybe one day I'll come down. Well, the following week, I was talking to her children, and they said, you know, when you left, my, our mom said she'll never go to church. And I said, why is that? And she says, because she said she's so bad that God will strike her down with lightning if she steps into your building. She was on drugs. She was sleeping with various men. That was her lifestyle. Apparently, that didn't bother her. But the idea of stepping into a church building terrified her. Her conscience would not allow her to think that that's even an option. It was accusing her. Do you see, Paul says, even the Gentiles have a concept of the law of God. Everyone has a conscience, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever. When we look at the conscience in Scripture, it really is a New Testament concept. You don't find the conscience really mentioned in the Old Testament. The equivalence is probably the heart that is mentioned there. In the New Testament, we see that the Greek word that is used is synodesis. Uh, we get conscience from the Latin word, uh, consensia, and, and both means it gives the idea of with knowledge, of having knowledge. Okay, about 27 times in the New Testament, you find the conscience mentioned. Uh, you don't find it in the Gospels. You find it twice in the book of Acts. And all of the other occurrences are primarily in letters written by Paul. So Paul really emphasizes the conscience. We find a few references in Peter, then we find some in Hebrews, and we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, and so if you say it was Paul, then the majority of these are by Paul. If you say it's another author, well, then we'd have to give that author credit as well. But the point here is, is it really is a New Testament concept, possibly a Greek mind that is thinking of the conscience, not so much the Jewish mind. In the Jewish mind, it was more the issue of the heart, Okay, kind of that, that central point of man, that control center of man, the heart. One uh, passage in, in 1 Samuel that is translated as conscience, but the word actually is heart, is when King David was running for his life and hiding in caves because Saul was trying to kill him. And so Saul goes into a cave, and the Bible says he's relieving himself. David goes up behind him uh, and cuts off an edge, a piece of Saul's robe. And it says, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him. His heart bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So if David was uh, feeling a little guilty about bothering Saul when he was relieving himself, that's understandable. I mean, you don't want to go in and bother someone when they're in the restroom, and that's what it means here with Saul. Uh, other commentators look at this and say it's quite possible that what David's conscience was bothering him, why it was bothering him, is because he had touched the garments of the king. And that if you touch the garments of the king, it's like touching the king himself, and you simply don't do that. Uh, and so when you look at this, either way, David felt bad about what he did. 
His conscience bothered him. His heart was not letting him rest. It was accusing him. That was wrong, David. You should not have approached your king that way. Even though this man wants to kill you, it was still wrong. And David had that understanding within, and it bothered him. You know, as I mentioned, the conscience is, is found in both the, the unbeliever and the believer. But when we talk about the seared conscience and the sensitive conscience, you're going to find the seared conscience most often within the unbeliever. I say most often because you do have Christians who are, in many ways, their own worst enemies. And they do things uh, that will, will cause their conscience to become desensitized. Not to the point where they're not saved, but to the point where they are committing sins and they really aren't as impacted by that as they once were. I think of King David. We talked about David's conscience being bothered here, but yet again we find David who has no problem committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. But when you read various Psalms where David talks about his condition when he's dealing with his sin, when he's not confessing it, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, David is a wreck. Physically and spiritually, mentally, emotionally, David is torn apart until he deals with his sin. I do believe that, that genuine Christians can, can do things, you know, the, the, the lack of prayer, neglecting God's word, forsaking fellowship, all sorts of things that are going to contribute to the conscience being less sensitive to God than it should be. And that's where they're going to find themselves dabbling with sin you know, testing temptation and crossing that boundary uh, that they shouldn't cross. And that's because their conscience has been a little desensitized and they need to get back on track. But for this morning, we're going to treat the seared conscience as a, a product of an unbelieving person. And the sensitive conscience, obviously only in those who are saved by Jesus Christ. So what is a seared conscience? What does it look like? 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. As Paul is speaking to Timothy, he's a pastor in Ephesus, he says, Timothy, there are days coming when false teachers are going to misrepresent you know, God's word, they're going to lead people astray, and they're going to be okay with that. They're not going to feel guilty. They won't hesitate. They will lead people down the path of damnation. Why? Because their consciences are seared. It's as if they've been branded with a hot iron. You know, when you think about branding, here is this animal that's receiving a brand, and if you have ever been on a farm or you've dealt with cattle, you know that they brand them uh, to make sure that they can keep track of their cattle. They mark them because there are people who are cattle thieves. They want to go steal livestock, so they, they brand their animals. And what this hot iron is, is they, they put it in fire, it gets red hot, they press it into the skin, it burns the fur, it burns the hide, and that area around it is killed. The skin is killed. The, 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 the receptor's there. The, the, everything is killed. It's a painful thing, but what is left is this scar tissue from the brand, and it no longer has the sensitivity of skin because it's been burned. It's been destroyed. And Paul says that these false teachers, their conscience has been branded with an iron. 
it's seared. The Greek word for this searing is the same word where we get cauterizing. When I think of cauterizing, I think of, has anyone remember watching uh, Rambo? That old Sylvester Stallone movie, he's on the run and he falls and he gets this massive gash in his arm and he takes his big knife and he heats it up and then he puts it in there and he's, he's cauterizing his wound to keep it from bleeding. It's a painful thing. When he does that, I mean, the cauterization there is used in the medical field to, to help people survive. But what Paul is saying here is that their conscience has been cauterized. You don't want a, a conscience that is cauterized. You want one that is sensitive, sensitive to the pain of sin and temptation, sensitive to the, the ugliness and depravity of the world. You don't want a conscience that doesn't feel, that doesn't experience those feelings. You know, we want a conscience that, that is so aware of the surroundings and so sensitive to sin and temptation that its natural reaction is to pull away from it, not to just endure it. Charles Spurgeon says this, Some men's conscience, our consciences are covered with thick skin and are devoid of feeling. Certain sinners have a conscience seared as with a hot iron, and this brings with it that horrible peace which is the preface of eternal damnation. He says you have people with a seared conscience that are on the path to condemnation, and it doesn't bother them. They happily walk down that path. They don't realize they're on the road to condemnation, or they do, and they just simply don't care because they believe what they're doing is right. They don't want to be in line with God's Word. And so as the hot iron is pressed into the flesh and, and burns all of the sensitivity away, that's what happens to the conscience. And that is why these false teachers, without hesitation, without reservation, they will mislead other people. And they're not bothered by it because they have no more spiritual feeling. It doesn't bother them to do things that are contrary to God's law, to teach false doctrine. And so they feel no regret. They call evil good and they call good evil. And they lead others down that path. Here's another example from Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And so Paul says, here's another example. Uh, you have those who have a defiled conscience. With their mouths they confess God, but with their lives they deny God. They're good for nothing. They're detestable. They're worthless. They're disobedient. You look around our world today and we see so many people that fall into that category. And that's not being self-righteous in judgment. When you look at what they believe and how they live and the things they promote, in the eyes of God, they are detestable. They are disobedient and they are worthless. Why? Because their conscience is defiled. Their minds are defiled. This describes the unbelieving world. When you think about those, especially, and I'm focusing just in our nation, who are standing in clear opposition to God and His Word, who hate good and love evil, who want to see the spread of God's Word stopped, who want to see churches closed, when we understand a little more about the danger of a seared conscience, the, the results of a seared conscience, why it makes people think the way they do, that will help us understand the people in our nation who are so far away from God. And rather than feeling anger and hatred for them, 
we should look at them and have compassion and say, I pity that person. They are standing before God and they are going to hell and proud. They really don't understand what they're saying. If they understood what hell was like and they understood their sin before a holy God and it's going to result in eternal damnation, they would not be proud of that. They're proud because their mind and their conscience is corrupt. It's seared. There is a website called undojesus.org, and they go around with T-shirts and banners and stickers, and it says, if Jesus returns, kill him again. You can look it up yourself. I mean, it's right there on the Internet. They want to see a stop to Christianity. They believe that Christianity and the spread of God's words is one of the most, uh, uh, one of the most um, you know, destructive things in our country. The greatest reason as to why we have trouble within the world. They say it's religion, but they target Christianity. And they even explain why they target Christ and not other concepts of God first. They say because so many people, and I'm paraphrasing, so many people have embraced the concept of Jesus that it just kind of saturates the world. So let's start with him. He's the biggest threat. Let's kill Jesus again if he returns. You know, so when you're, when you're reading articles on the website or you're watching uh, news programs or you see people protesting who are out there promoting LGBTQ, you know, pansexual, non-binary, transgender, gender fluidity, polyamory, whatever it might be, and you look at them and say, how can they believe that? How can this woman believe she's a man? How can this man believe that he's a woman? How is that even logical? They talk about believe the science, but science says they're wrong. They're selective when they want to believe science because they don't have any standard of truth. Their truth is corrupt. It's not truth at all. They'll even go through the, the, the process of physical mutilation to try to match themselves physically with who they think they are. You know, we have a man who just said he's going to run for governor in our state, and he wants to fix the problems of the state, but he doesn't even know if he's a man or a woman. He thinks he's a woman, but he's a man. He's so confused, he can't figure out who he is, but he thinks he's going to fix our state. This is the mindset of the fallen world around us. The conscience is seared. It's completely destroyed. And it's not anything new. It's an ancient problem. Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is what we often refer to as general revelation, that God has created the heavens and the earth and that the earth, the heavens, that they declare the glory of God. We can see that in Psalm 19 in verses 1 through 6. We understand that God's creation is a testimony. Every day there's a living testimony of creation that says there is a God. But those who understood with what God has put before their eyes and what God has put within them, as we'll see, they still reject the Creator. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their flesh or their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, okay, their conscience tells them that. Remember what Paul said about the Gentiles, the law of God? It accuses them. They're accused by that, but they don't care. They still choose to worship the created, not the creator. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They ignore the general revelation. They ignore their God-given conscience. They embrace and they encourage wickedness, and they bring condemnation upon themselves. This is not something that's new. We might look at our country and say, where is this coming from? This is not the America that I knew. The founding fathers would roll over in their graves if they knew what was going on. But the reality is, is just because we haven't seen it on full display in our country doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It's always existed since the fall of man. We just haven't seen it. We haven't seen it in our own backyard. We've read about it in Scripture. We've never seen it protesting in Los Angeles. We haven't seen it taking an office, a political office in our country, but we do now. And it's only going to get worse. And if we as Christians are not very careful to keep our conscience in line with God, we're going to be very confused about how to think in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Because we're going to be challenged with so many things that are contrary to Scripture as individual Christians and as congregations. And we're going to have some very serious, tough decisions to make. They shouldn't be that difficult. We should look at God's Word and say, if you're asking me to do this and God's Word says this, I'm doing this regardless of the consequence. But you know, you have a lot of professing Christians who are having trouble with a lot of these issues. Well, I, I just don't know about that. I, I'm not real sure. It drives me crazy when I'm reading articles from professing Christian musicians where they're, they're in an interview and they say, what do you think about abortion? Well, well I don't know. I don't want to tell a woman what to do. I, I, I know what I think, but you know, I, I think God's you know, merciful and gracious and loving, and I don't want to judge anyone. What do you think about homosexuality? Well, you know, that's not for me to say. Really? You say you're a Christian, right? Yes. You believe in the Bible? Yes. Do you believe that the Word of God says it's an abomination? Well, really? I mean, it doesn't take much 
digging to find people who profess to be Christians who are flip-flopping in their convictions. We, we condemn politicians who flip-flop. Why don't we condemn professing Christians who are flip-flopping? They are these weak, spineless individuals who have a conscience that is not in line with God's Word. It knows what God's Word says, but it refuses to act upon it because it's not politically correct. It doesn't want to be called hateful. It doesn't want to be called intolerant. So what if the world says those things about us? If our conscience is in line with God's word and we proclaim what God's word says, who cares what the world's evaluation of us is? We are no longer unbelievers with a seared conscience. We shouldn't think that way. We need to make sure that we have the sensitive conscience that says, if God says yes, I say yes. If God says no, I say no. And that's not me speaking. That's not my knowledge. That's not my wisdom. That is God's. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God. He is the standard of truth. He's the reason why we have a concept of morals and ethics and good and bad and right and wrong. And his truth is the only truth that never changes. God's word, God's truth is timeless, it is divine, it is transcendent. It will never change from person to person, from age to age, from location to location, situation to situation. It's always the same. And it's the safest source of information for our consciences. Listen, those other, those other those, uh, GPS devices that I talked to you about earlier, I shared with you earlier, there was a flaw somewhere. It was either in the programming, it was in the updating, it was in the software, it was in the hardware. Maybe it was right and the person just didn't pay attention to what was going on around them. But when the conscience is informed by God's word, it's never going to leave you stranded in Death Valley. It's never going to have you drive off a bridge that has been torn apart. And obviously, we're talking spiritual here. It's not going to lead you down a road of destruction. Now, listen, as we close, we're, I'm going to end up dividing this into two messages because yesterday I was told, hey, remember you have a, a time frame. I went a little bit over. If I finish this message today, you're going to be here until about 1 o'clock. So we'll come back next week for part two. But let me leave you with this. You know, we've heard about the seared conscience. We've heard about how depraved our world is, and especially that what we're seeing in our country is just an example of people standing at God, shaking their fists in rebellion and saying, I don't care. I'm proud to go to hell. If Christ comes again, I'll kill him. Is there any hope for them? Well, as we look at what the Bible says about the conscience, the answer is absolutely yes, there is. We should not look at those with a seared conscience and say, well, I hate you. You deserve hell. Because the truth is, we deserve hell as well. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be forgiven. The only reason why we have salvation, why we have the assurance of forgiveness and glory with God in his presence, is because of the perfect work of Christ. It's not our merit. It's his merit. It's not our work. It's his work. Hebrews chapter 9, and just so you know a little bit of the context here, if you're not familiar with Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, through several chapters, gives a contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
the, the, the inability of the Old Testament sacrificial system to atone for the sins of fallen sinful people. That all the priests who went before the people of Israel into the temple and offered you know, the sacrifices that were required, those sacrifices could never save an individual. They were ceremonial, they were ritual, they went in and they were always pointing to a greater sacrifice to come that would be provided through Christ in the new covenant. So all the Old Testament animals that were slaughtered, no animal's blood, no animal sacrifice could ever save the soul of a fallen person. And this is what we see here in relation to the conscience. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices, those temple sacrifices, going through all the obedience of the temple rituals and the priest offering on your behalf, that cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It can't do it. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Paul says, listen, the animals couldn't do it. All of those priests of Israel couldn't do it. They needed to sacrifice millions of animals over hundreds of years, and that still didn't atone for the sins of human beings. But what Jesus Christ did one time for all who trust in him, that sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's only Christ that can do that. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul says, listen, if, if the only reason that we can, can draw near to God, the only reason that we can stand in the presence of God and call upon God is because we've been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. His shed blood on our behalf has satisfied the wrath of God. The wrath that we read about in, in Romans chapter 1 was satisfied through the perfect work of Jesus Christ so that all who call upon Christ, all who believe in him, will be saved, will be forgiven. They are children of God. They receive the Holy Spirit who indwells within them, who seals them until the day of redemption. And there is the guarantee that the perfect work that he began in us, he'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's just a sampling of what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Paul says, your evil conscience will be sprinkled clean through Christ. So is there hope for those with a seared conscience? Absolutely. But there's only one hope. The only hope is the work of Jesus. And that is why when we are sharing with others who don't share our faith, who... who, who disagree with God, whether they are protesting and holding signs saying, I'm happy to go to hell or I'll kill Christ again, or they simply say, I, I believe in Jesus, but you know what? That's for you, not for me, but I'm okay if you believe that. We meet a lot of nice people who aren't standing in outright rebellion to God. They might believe Jesus existed. They might say he's a good teacher that he was a righteous man, he was a good example to follow, but they won't say that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the one they have to trust in, but they're really nice people. It doesn't matter what category of disbelief they're in. If they do not believe in Christ, they have a seared conscience and they're on their way to hell. That is why when we speak to them, when we share the gospel with them, 
we need to tell them that they need to appeal to God for a good conscience. You need to beg God to be right. Beg Him to save you. Beg Him for His mercy. Ask Him to forgive you through the perfect work of His Son, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And obviously, when Peter is speaking here of the resurrection, he's not omitting the sacrifice of Christ. He's just focusing on the resurrection at this point. It is the incarnation of Christ. It is Christ living as the God-man, fulfilling every aspect of the law on our behalf. It is Christ going to the cross and dying on the cross, taking our place, our substitute, the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction, him dying physically, being buried in the tomb, rising on the third day, defeating sin and Satan and death, ascending to heaven, interceding for his people now. You believe in the perfect work of Christ, all of it. And you say, what he did is all I need. Nothing else saves. God, I want that. For my entire life, I've been living in opposition to you. I've been living with a seared conscience. I've been living with a flawed moral GPS. But I need this. I know I need this. No matter how corrupt you've been, no matter how many years you've been living in sin, all those who call upon Christ will be saved. God will not reject anyone who comes through his Son. So not only do we need to share this with others, there might be someone here today who needs this good conscience. And as I close in prayer, I, I, I beg you. You need to get right with God. If you do not, you have nothing in store but wrath. Nothing in store but condemnation. It will never end. The Bible says that all those who stand before Christ uh, at what is called this great white throne judgment at the end of the ages, they're going to be found lacking and cast into the lake of fire forever. There is no escape and there is no relief. There is no second chance. The chance you have is right now while you are still alive on this earth. And as long as you are living and breathing, there is hope. And God says he will save you. Peter says you will have a living hope. You will have an inheritance in God's kingdom that is imperishable and undefiled, that will never be taken away. It's reserved in heaven for you. But you only have that through Christ. And so as I close in prayer, as I said, next week we're going to look at what is a sensitive conscience. I'm going to share with you seven characteristics of a sensitive conscience. But as we close today, if you are a believer, take this time to thank the Lord that he saved you, that he renewed your conscience, he renewed your mind, he made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as we'll see next week, do all that you can to strive to maintain that clear conscience before God. If you need that salvation this morning, you have that opportunity to just go before God and confess your sin. I know I'm a sinner. I've heard what your word says. I cannot do it on my own. I need the salvation that your son provided. Save me. There's no magic formula. There's no special words. If you understand that, you believe it, you confess it, God knows exactly the desire of your heart. He knows that you're sincere and he knows that you understand your need for him and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for giving us this opportunity to study your word and to see 
the importance of the conscience. Father, I pray that for those who are here this morning who don't know you, that you would just soften their hearts, you would give them that, that wonderful gift of salvation through your Son, that they would understand today that every attempt that they could make to satisfy you is futile. They could never be right with you on their terms. They have to be right with you on your terms. And that is that you sent the Messiah into this world, your Son, to pay the price for our sins, to become our substitute, to allow his blood to be shed so that we will be covered by it and sprinkled clean and made new. Father, I pray that someone here today would just call out to you and ask for that salvation and that you would grant it to them, Lord, and create in them a new heart, a new conscience, one that is sensitive to your word and that will begin today, Lord, a life that will honor you and a life that will demonstrate their love for Christ and their, their desire to be a true disciple and to live for his glory. Father, for those of us who are saved, I pray that you would remind us this morning how important it is to maintain a clear conscience, that, that it is that wonderful gift that you have given to us that will guide us through this wicked world, this dark world, that, that will help us make the right decisions informed by your word so that we do not find ourselves stumbling in darkness, but that we walk with clear vision down the straight and narrow path. Father, I pray as we close today and we, we sing our, our praises to you that you will be honored in us, that you will accept our offering of worship through song. And I pray that as we have learned from your word today, that you will help us to be both hearers and doers for the glory of your name, for growth in our lives, and to be salt and light to those around us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name.